As we're looking that up, I thought maybe we can do a little pop quiz. I, I know how much you guys like quizzes. For those of you who were here last week Sunday, how many remember the three points of Pastor Tim's inaugural sermon on Ephesians 3? Show of hands is fine. I'll give you a moment. No uh, looking on your phones at church social or your notes. Don't worry. I didn't see Pastor Tim's hand go up neither. <laughs> and actually, and neither did my, and I, I couldn't remember them neither, but I have to admit, I do remember that each point ended with a person of the Trinity. And probably the only reason I, could, I, I remember that is I knew then already I would be preaching on Lord's Day 8, so it caught my attention. And yes, these first three chapters of Ephesians are so full of mentioning the triune God. And by the way, I, I did have an old liturgy sheet. His points were knowing the nature of the Father. The second was growing in love of the Son. And third, praising the power of the Spirit. And as we read Ephesians 1, you'll see um, and notice how Paul obviously had in his mind a triune God at work. And so with that in mind, I still haven't found it, but with that in mind, uh, let's uh, read from Ephesians chapter 1. Hear the word of our Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So far, the Word of our God. We will respond to the sermon by singing from two hymns. Hymn, first, Hymn 28, stanza 7, and then Hymn 50, 
stanzas one and two. Brothers and sisters, loved by the one and only true and eternal God. Yes, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service today, we focus on the fact that God has revealed Himself as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, also known, of course, as the doctrine of the Trinity. And we read from some of the creeds and confessions. You know, they all deal with the Trinity in their own way, and they are helpful in how they summarize what God teaches in His Word. But then I also must admit that I I find how our catechism deals with the Trinity kind of refreshing. Since there's only one God, why in the world are you now talking about three persons? And the answer given is short, but it is also sweet. Why? Simple. Because that is the way that God has revealed Himself to us. These three distinct persons are the one true and eternal God. And so I figured I'd take my cue from Lord's Day 8 and also Article 8 of our Belgian Confession to come up with a summary statement or main theme for this sermon. Simply is that we believe that our God is one with three very real and distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yes, maybe I'll beat you to it. There's always that person or persons who will say, another pointless sermon, Pastor. Yeah, I didn't come up with three points for you. Kind of dumb, really, especially dealing with the Trinity. There's your three points. But I thought, what's the point? Pardon the pun. Because it's in the theme. And while I don't have three points for a structure, I'd like to know, let you know a little bit about my plan for this sermon The plan today is not to try and find some new and clever way to explain the doctrine of the Trinity to you. Nor do I intend to show you a whole string of Scripture proofs. And I think our confessions do a very good job of that. And I do encourage you to explore them further if you feel the need or the desire to do so. No, instead, I hope to use Ephesians 1 instead of um, trying to wrap our minds around how it is possible, I just want to show you our triune God in action. I'd like to focus on how we can, we can love and praise God for the fact that He has revealed Himself as a tri-unity, we could say. But before we do that, I do think it's important that we do a little self-reflection, some assessment, also so that we might become aware of any dangers or obstacles when it comes to dealing with these things we don't completely understand. Because we may as well face it, something, something like one God in three persons is difficult if not impossible to fully comprehend. 
As one often quoted writer put it, no doubt with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, the Trinity is a matter of four relations, three persons, two processions, one substance or essence, and zero understanding. And so I'd just like to ask you, right now, and think about it, when we read from our confessions, when you heard about God's essence and persons and co-this and co-that, or that God is both Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity, what happened up there? What, what reaction did you have? Or did your brain, and maybe more importantly, what reaction did your heart have? Was it like, wow, this is my God? Or yes, that's what I believe about God? Or was it maybe more along the lines of, wow, what a bunch of gobbledygook. I don't think I understood a word of that. That just sailed right over top. Let's be aware of this tendency we might have. Especially if we've grown up in the church and if we've, we've heard it all before. And then when we hear these big theological words, or what I've sometimes heard them called these church words we like to use, it's easy for our minds and then probably also our hearts to just close up. Understanding God as one in three persons is hard for us. And unfortunately, often the things that are too hard get left by the wayside. See, the danger is that then something as beautiful as the Trinity becomes instead more like an awkward appendix than something we delight in. And when that happens, it's not much of a leap for us to begin to think that this particular doctrine has no practical value to us. And while, admittedly, we might not outright say it as he did, we do begin in some way, shape, or form to agree with um, someone like, for example, this 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, part of the Enlightenment so-called. He boldly claimed the doctrine of the Trinity has no practical relevance at all, even if we think we understand it. And it is even more clearly irrelevant if we realize that it transcends all our concepts. Because it does. See, from there, it's not hard to slip into thinking that, well, we really don't need this doctrine stuff. Like that appendix, we might begin to wonder, would we even be worse off without it? Brothers and sisters, I am bringing this all up because it's so important that we are aware of these dangers, these obstacles to believing and to loving God 
in the way in which He has revealed Himself. Can we do without it? No. We simply can't. Maybe we didn't like reading it in the Athanasian Creed just to give one example. Where there's, do you remember how it was worded? Unless you believe it, you will perish eternally. So no, we cannot do without it. Even the catechism, think of the previous Lord's Day. Every Christian must believe. The Apostles' Creed, which is of course, has the Trinity right there. One commentator I read said it well. If the Trinity were something we could shave off of God, we would not be relieving Him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing Him of precisely what is so delightful about Him. For God is triune. And he continues, and it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. End quote. And so, Mr. Kant, you're dead wrong. The Trinity is full of practical relevance. In fact, apart from the reality of the Trinity, we cannot know God at all. I hope, we, I hope to show this to you from Ephesians 1. Before I do, I'd like to share with you one more quote. I just love how Martin Luther summed up this this struggle that we can have between understanding and believing what God has revealed. And he wrote, Since I see that it is so distinctly contained and grounded in Scripture, I believe God more than my own thoughts and reason. And I do not worry about how it can possibly be true that there is only one essence and yet that there are three distinct persons. And so, my brothers and sisters, let's not fall in this trap of thinking of the doctrine of the Trinity as, as some kind of abstract thing that's just out there somewhere. Let's not think of it as something that's not relevant for us. It's not something just for the theologians to, to talk and write about. Our triune God is a living, working Creator and Redeemer. And this just comes out so clearly, so beautifully in the passage we read from Ephesians 1. If you don't already do so, I encourage you to have your Bibles open as we see how God's plan of salvation involved every person of the Trinity. And you know, as I reflected on this passage of Scripture, it just never fails to amaze me. Every single time I read this part of God's Word, I'm struck all over again by the beauty of it 
and how comforting it is. And the best part, or I could say the thing I like the most best or the best about it is that it's kind of contagious. As we read, it's it's hard not to share in Paul's joy and his enthusiasm and his love for God. Don't you don't you find that? Because the, the feeling we get is that he's he's Bursting at the seams. He's, he's so in awe of God, he can't control his pen even, or whatever he wrote with. And then finally, after the ob- obligatory greeting is out of the way, the dam bursts, and, out, and, and the fountain overflows. For what follows from verse 3 all the way to 14 is one very long sentence in the original Greek. You've probably heard that before. Paul just piles on one phrase after the other. Then he has this thought. Then he has another thought. And we end up with with this complex piece of work. And the result is one long string of praise. And it actually, if you think about it, it stretches from eternity right into eternity. And yet, yeah, it may be a little convoluted, it's not hard at all to find within, within this long sentence three distinct sections because each one ends with words of praise for God. And yes, as you might have guessed, each of these parts focuses in on a different member of the Trinity. And so let's, let's dive in as Paul begins by praising God our Father. We read, blessed be, or other translations have, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, I just I want to pause here already, if I may. Notice how the eternal God is not some abstract con- um, concept out there. He is a person. More specifically, He is a Father. Eternally. See, that means that since before the creation of the world, this will be coming out clearer in the passage, God has always been a loving Father. Just take a minute to let that sink in. Since before creation, it's hard for our minds to to grasp this because at creation, that's when time started and we think in the terms of time. But our God was from eternity a loving Father. And it is His love for His Son that was also then poured out on us. Just listen to the beautiful words that Jesus Himself prayed for those who would believe in Him. Yes, that means Jesus is praying this for you and I. I pray that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in Me and I in you, so that the world may know that you loved them just as you loved Me. Let me repeat that. 
Our Father loves you and me with the same love He has for His only Son. Jesus continues praying about His desire for us to be with Him, to see His glory. He again refers to His Father's love because He says, "You, just as Jesus is talking, because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. I'm pointing this out, brothers and sisters, because do you see how very essential believing in a triune God is? If we did not know God as Father, we would never know about His love. The Apostle John, in whose Gospel we find Jesus' prayer, by the way, as you know, he, he writes extensively about God's love in his letters. I won't quote a bunch of them, but things like, love is from God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Unless we doubt the love of God, the Father, we also hear, and this is how God showed His love to us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Truly, we can echo Paul. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus Christ, this is something else I wanted to say before we continue reading. Jesus Christ, His Son, plays a very central role. And this can be seen in the focus given to the person and work of Christ, even while Paul is praising the Father. Everything that God does, everything that He has done, will do for our salvation, He does in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's get back to Ephesians 1. Let's try again, shall we? Starting again back at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the One that is Jesus Christ, whom He loves. Wow. Our Father out of His love for His Son, very purposely, very intentionally chooses. Yes, He predetermines that we be adopted into His family. All through Jesus Christ and according to His good pleasure. I couldn't help thinking of another part of John's letter 
where he too felt compelled to just burst out in praise of his God. Oh, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, while this choosing and predestining and, well, yeah, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of election. While this can be another one of those things we find hard to get our heads around, let us not forget this simple truth. We are chosen. And hopefully not the frozen chosen, as we have sometimes been accused of being. No, I mean chosen before we could do anything, good or bad. Just think how comforting that is as we go about our daily tasks, as we no doubt often notice our many failings. You see, that God chose us long before we were ever born takes away all doubt that we really are saved by grace alone. And then without getting too sidetracked, I'd like to raise one question that seems to always come up when we talk about the doctrine of election. So often our thoughts go to, well, if I'm elect, how can I be sure How can we be sure that we are among God's elect? And brothers and sisters, this is just another example of why it is so essential to believe in a triune God. We can be absolutely sure simply because God is one in three persons. Let me explain. You see, those those who are elect are chosen in Christ. That is so clear here. That is the only kind of election there is. In His great love for Jesus and us, God has chosen to unite us with His Son for our salvation. So no, we don't have to climb our way into heaven and sneak a peek into the book of life to know for sure. God has made Himself known to us in Christ. And so if we are in Christ, we need not doubt whether we are elect, chosen. John Calvin put it well. He writes, we're not going to find assurance of election in ourselves. Instead, Christ. Christ is the mirror in which we can contemplate our own election. I love that. If Christ is the mirror and you're wondering, don't look inwardly, look to Christ. And you will know. And as added assurance, let's not forget that God in His grace also sent His Spirit to live in us as His guarantee. And we'll see that a bit later. But for now, let's continue with Ephesians 1. As Paul turns his focus and praise 
to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Oh, it is the longest part. I'd like to read it together as a whole. There's something that makes it special when you read it together as a whole. And while I'm doing this, if you notice a little bit of difference in your Bibles, um, I'm going to be using Christ's name in all those places where He is being referred to so that we get a feel for how central Christ is to our salvation. We begin verse 7. Hear the Word of God. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our sins, trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things together in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Again, wow! I had to kind of admit now I'm a little speechless or I was as I was writing this sermon. Yes, even a preacher can be at a loss for words. I, I literally found myself staring at this blinking cursor on a blank page for a long time. Literally, I'm stumped. How do, how do we deal with this? What, a, what amazing grace. Talk about mind-boggling. In these few verses, we find one of the, the most beautiful explanations of our triune God at work for our salvation. And yes, one of the reasons I was stumped is, I mean, there's a lot of theology here. There's way too much to unpack today. Instead, as we marvel at the second person of the Trinity, let's, let's instead consider this. Do you see how essential, it's not optional, it's essential for us to believe in a triune God? It is absolutely vital because if Jesus is not true and eternal God, if, and, and, and without Jesus, Jesus as a person of the triune God, none of this would be possible or true for us. And then, of course, this becomes very practical for our lives. Every single thing we do on a daily basis, would be affected. 
For it is only in Jesus Christ that we can know for sure that we have been chosen, redeemed, forgiven, predestined for adoption as God's children, reconciled, sanctified, glorified. All for the praise of His glory. Let's move to the final two verses. And here we'll see how the salvation that originated with the Father's love and that was accomplished by His Son, how it is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, In Christ, you also, when you heard the Word of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, that is Jesus Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. There's that refrain again. All to the praise of His glory. My brothers and sisters, thank God often that His Spirit is also true and eternal God and a very active person of the Trinity. For it is the Holy Spirit who even enables us to hear the Gospel truth, the message of our salvation. And then it is the Holy Spirit who causes us to believe. As we heard in the previous Lord's Day, the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by this Gospel. And so, we can see how the salvation that Jesus accomplished in the past, it is made real. It is made living. It is brought into our present reality as the Spirit applies it to our lives. That is what is meant by being sealed by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit, sometimes we might go along sort of thinking this way, He's not just some kind of force or something that's out there, like, like a power or what have you. The Holy Spirit is as real a person as Jesus is or the Father is. And He lives in you and I. And He seals the deal, so to speak, assuring us that we really do belong to God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our guarantee. And actually, a Greek word used here refers to a down payment or a first installment, we could say. And this down payment acts as a promise that the full amount will be coming. And so what that means is that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is given to us as a promise from God that more is on the way. Our full inheritance. Eternal life with God. But, and this is important, it's not only about this future reality. 
The very fact that the Holy Spirit is being compared here to a first installment by its very nature, that means the deposit, it means that it has already been given to us. That's what a deposit is. The Nicene Creed, which we'll be using to profess our faith shortly, it highlights this truth. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life. And now we're getting into a whole other topic of regeneration or recreation. Basically, the Holy Spirit gives us new life. And He does this by giving us His very self. Listen to what Paul writes to the Romans. God's love. There it is again. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He lives in our hearts. Why? so that we might know and enjoy Him and also share and enjoy the fellowship that He has with the Father and the Son as God's love is poured into our hearts. Brothers and sisters, what love! What an amazing triune God we have. Just as we can read elsewhere in the Bible about the Holy Spirit being given to us. God has anointed us. And He has put His seal or His mark on us. And He has given us His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Do you see the wonderful assurance this gives us in whatever we face in life. I'd like to share with you something I came across that beautifully explains how we can be, like, like how um, practical, how relevant, and how we can be assured by the fact that the Holy Spirit is there living in our hearts. Because life isn't always easy. We may be disappointed, discouraged. We may be suffering from an unpleasant past, an unhappy present, or an uncertain future. Perhaps we doubt whether God even cares. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, then we are marked with His seal. God has fixed His Spirit on us. And this, and this seal is going to stay with us. It's always with us till the day we receive the full benefit of what Jesus did for us. Our triune God has promised. He has promised He will bring us through all our troubles into a joy that will never 
end. Do you have this wonderful assurance, my dear brothers and sisters? Do you not only believe that our God is triune, do you also love Him in this way as He has revealed Himself, one God, in three persons, truly a blessed trinity. Let me encourage you to make it real. And this is especially true if the doctrine of the trinity feels like something that's been collecting dust for too long in that too hard basket somewhere in our brains. One way to do this, and I encourage you to do this, take some time every morning this coming week to read and reread this beautiful expression of praise we find here in Ephesians 1. Try reading it in different translations for different nuances. That's what I'm going to do. Are you with me? And it is my hope, it is my prayer that Paul's inspired words are indeed contagious. And that as we go about our day, that we can grow more and more in our love for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Always giving glory to our triune God alone. And that is a good way to end. We'll be singing these words Let us give all blessing, honor, thanks, and praise to You, O triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who saved us by Your grace. Amen.